If you're new, we are going through Psalms 1 through 41. That is the book, book one of five in the Psalms. And we're going Psalm by Psalm. It's been really good. Thankful for that. Our theme is Abide. And our title today is The Fool Says There Is No God. All right, how about that for a title uh, and aggression, right? But it is a direct quote from verse 1 of Psalm 14. Uh, The fool says there is no God. Uh, Psalm 14 is is finishing a small subsection of Psalms, and it's the section between Psalm 9 and Psalm 14, which is addressed from uh, the, the poor and afflicted ones. And those are the people that are under the thumb of wickedness in this world and trying to walk with the Lord and uh, abide in Him despite the, the loudness of the voice of wickedness, the prevalence of wickedness, and some things of that are very parallel to our day today. So it's very applicable for us. And so it's finishing, um, that's been the subject of Psalm 9 through 14. The object of Psalm 9 through 14 has been the Lord. And that's one of the major things that we're learning in the Psalms, right? Is we have these subjects in our lives, these things that are dark or difficult or things that are good or things that consume us. What the Psalms are teaching us is take those subjects to the Lord and make the Lord your object about those subjects. And one of the major problems humanity has always had and we have as well, is when we make things that are subjects in our lives the object of our lives. And Psalms is helping correct that for us and helping us not only correct it, but learn how to pray through it as that, as the Lord would correct that in us. So the object of Psalm 9 through 14 prayers has has been the Lord. And today we're going to take this core feeling, this core declaration of the wicked, we're going to take this, this phrase, there is no God, we're going to take it to the Lord. So to get personal real quick, I just want to ask you, um, uh, that's an awkward way to start a statement, right? To get personal real quick, right? Um, who do you know who is saying there is no God? That's what I mean by personal. Let's, let's make it personal. Who do you know, family, friend, coworker, classmate, teammate, who do you know that is saying there is no God? There's a chance there's someone in this room today that's saying there is no God and you're just here, you're like, I'm gonna give this a shot because someone invited me and I get that. But who do, you, who do you know? I just want you to have that person or those persons in your mind as we go through Psalm 14 because the Lord can soften our hearts about it and help us understand some things to be a bit more convictional about it but also share the Lord's heart about this subject as well. And then the second question I wanna ask is, is the prevalence of that person who, or people who are saying there is no God, is the prevalence of that in your life, is it in any way uprooting your own abiding in the Lord? Like maybe they're talking about it so much or it's so prevalent in, in what you read or, or your feed or whatever it is that you're like, man, I'm, I'm not abiding as well. This is starting to, to uproot me a little bit. So I just want to ask those personally, applicationally as we get going. Next, I want to share a really cool anecdote about prayer. Um, Obviously, our our year theme is abide. Prayer is a huge component of that. It's also being in the Lord. It's also being in the Word. It's also uh, fellowship, all of those things. But last Sunday, um, this is a very simple, I want to remind you of the power of prayer right now. Um, Last Sunday, first service, my allergies were destroying me. And uh, 
trying to, y'all know this, trying to speak for 30 minutes when your allergies are destroying you and your throat is itchy and you're like, don't get too loud, but I got to be loud enough. But then, and then there's lights and it opens up the sinus. It's just like worst case scenario for the face. All right. And for the throat, you know what I'm saying? Like not so much here or here, but right. All right. So that was happening to me. It was miserable. I'm like, I got to get through this service. The whole time I'm preaching, I'm like, I love your word. I love these people. Um, but Lord, may this end soon, right? Because it was so, it was difficult. And so between the services, I'm making some, another cup of tea with lots of honey to try to coat my throat. And uh, I'm talking to Caleb Yeomans, one of, our, one of our amazing members. He's sitting right there. I'm not going to make him. Just raise your hand, Caleb. Just do it. There's Caleb. There's Caleb. So Caleb's back there. We're catching up. And then um, after about five minutes, he's like, hey, do you have another few minutes? I said, sure. And I'm like, Is he, are we going to talk about something else? or whatever, which kind of made me nervous because I'm thinking, I got to go preach, right? But Caleb's like, I just want to pray for you about your face. He didn't say it like that. <laughs> he didn't say it like that, but he did. He said, I just want to pray about that so that you can preach well. And y'all, he, he put his arm around me, prayed over me, prayed over my allergies. And y'all, the second service last week, if you were here, I know y'all, y'all aren't like, under, y'all aren't seeing this or maybe necessarily... I, I was so clear-headed, literally and spiritually. Um, it was a miracle of God. And the entire sermon, I'm like, this is a miracle. This is a miracle. This is a miracle. And I, I just want y'all to, I, I want, we want to share stories like that together as a people, right? Believing in the power of prayer, even over allergies, even over things like that, like God can do anything. And, and it took a brother, a member in, in the church to just be like, hey man, I just want to pray over you. And, and then I had a worship experience while preaching God's word that God had answered that prayer. So, so I want to encourage you with this, this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones that Caleb did, and I know so many of us are doing, this quote, always respond to every impulse to pray. Always respond to every impulse to pray. Because y'all, God has given us impulses to pray all the time. And through those impulses, he wants to refresh a situation. He wants to bring truth into a situation. He wants to bring hope. He wants to bring love. He wants to bring a miracle. He wants to bring a change. He wants to bring momentary relief from allergies that can be better than an allergy pill, right? He wants to do those things. So let's believe firmly in the power of prayer as a people. And I pray that that little story, that little no longer silly moment, because God used it toward a miracle, um, I, pray that, I pray that we, even little things like that, we pray about, okay? So back to Psalm 14. Let's not refuse, similarly, let's not refuse the impulse to pray about the wicked who say there is no God, right? When we, when we hear about that, when we meet people, when we're around people that we love and they're saying that, one of the things that we must be doing is praying about that, right? Of course, like, what's well, one of the biggest things to be praying for, so let's not refuse the impulse to pray about the wicked who say that there is no God. Rather, we want to take that to the Lord in prayer. So Psalm 14 diagnoses from prayer, which is really cool. We learn so many diagnostic things about ourselves, about the Lord, about the world while we're praying. Diagnosis from prayer, the heart of the wicked with this truth, our big idea today. It's disbelief in God who would save you or who would give you life is perilously foolish, all right? Disbelief in God who would give you life is perilously foolish. 
It's not just foolish like, hey, you did, you did a dumb thing and there's some consequences. This is perilously foolish because with the Lord, we're talking about eternal things, eternal consequences. So I want to ask three questions today as we go in this text. And those questions are, who, what do fools say? We already know the answer. It's, it's verse one. They say there is no God. What do fools say? The next is, what does God say? And two of our points today of four are going to answer that. What does God say? And then third question is, what then do we say? And that'll be our fourth point today. All right? So here we go. First point, fools say there is no God from verse 1a. All right? Verse 1a says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Do y'all remember that song, um, What Does the Fox Say? Do y'all remember that? <laughs> Terrible, annoying, in your head forever song. Do y'all remember that? Yeah, I'm sorry, I brought it up. I brought it up. What, what fools, that, that song was so annoying. Um, and then uh, we see here in this text what fools say. And fools say there is no God. In verse 1, just, just the first part of verse 1 has such incredible insight for us, and there's two things. The first thing I want us to see is that fools say this. This is aggressive language in the scriptures, agree? Right? Fools say this. God is diagnostically saying, fools say this. And so if you are saying there is no God, or if your friend or your family member or your classmate or your teammate is saying there is no God, the Bible is calling you a fool. The Bible is calling that person a fool. I think sometimes we're like, that's uncomfortable, so let's just not be uncomfortable and let's not mention uncomfortable things. But, but the Bible does this so many times. It says true things that make us uncomfortable so that we would sit in the discomfort and do something about that. So if you're here today and you're thinking, I, I say there is no God. I, I want you to be uncomfortable with that phrase because the Bible is saying that fools say this. May the aggression here from God's word do its work in you. Uh, the Hebrew word for fool is nabal, and it means N-A-B-A-L, and it means corrupt to the core, causing aggressive perversion. And sometimes with foolishness, we're like, this is outward behavior. But, but the Bible defines foolishness as, as what is core in you and it causing outward thoughts, outward things you say, outward behaviors. It's corrupt to the core. And perversion here means doing something that's opposite to the way God designed it. Something that, that God would say, believe this, but instead you believe the opposite. Live this way, but you believe the opposite. Think this, but you think the opposite. That's a perversion. It's doing the opposite of how God has so wonderfully designed us. Also, interestingly, in the Old Testament, in 1 Samuel 25, is a man named the Hebrew word for fool. His name is Nabal, all right? Now, it's really trendy to name your kids after Hebrew names. This is not a good choice, all right? Don't name your kid Nabal. Not a good idea. It may come in handy as you're disciplining your child when they're being foolish, but that's the only time other than that bad idea. What, what was up with Nabal is he would not acknowledge God. He would not acknowledge God. He did foolish things, but as you read that chapter, 
You're like, it's not about the foolish things that makes him foolish. It's that he's not acknowledging God. He is not acknowledging God's promises. He's not acknowledging moments or opportunities to support God's purposes. And so he is called foolish. In other areas, he's called the foolish husband. His wife's name was Abigail. Abigail was awesome. And she's actually going to King David and saying, please don't smite my husband for his foolishness. He's called the, the foolish husband. He's called the fool. He was a wealthy man. He was caught up in the snares of this world. He's thinking, I got everything I need here. Why would I need God? So there, therefore, there is no God. All right? Verse 1a says, fools say this. Verse 1a also says, there is no God. From what? From where are they saying it? From their hearts. You would think, well, from their mouths. Well, that's, that's obvious. If you're saying it, you're already saying it. So here we get some intel, like you're saying that from your heart. This is belief. This is actually unbelief. They're saying it from their hearts, the source. Jesus says in Luke 6, 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. Y'all, there's so many people that are like, I, I gotta be a good person, I, I'll, I'll have all the right deeds, and then God will save me. It doesn't work like that. God changes your heart, and then that produces good. It's, this is inside-out sort of stuff. Then he says, and the evil person out of his evil treasure in his heart produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So this is a belief thing that the fool is saying in verse 1a. In the book of Proverbs, which mentions foolishness and honor and righteousness so many times, it's over and over and over, the fool is the person who is enamored with self. If you were to, if you were to just try, try to simplify foolishness, it's, it's selfishness. It's a person that is enamored with self. The self-centered person denies counsel from others, especially the Lord, and denies accountability and continues on in wickedness, including saying things like, there is no God. I want you all to think about this for a minute with me. The, the human condition... Um, in our broken state, uh, because of our self-centeredness, because of sin, the human condition is to not want anyone or anything over us. Y'all agree with that? Like, we, we don't want to be told what's right, what's wrong. We don't want to be told what's true, what's not. Instead, we're like, I, I, I make those decisions and the Lord is like, that is foolish because I created you, I created everything, I love you, I want you to come to me, right? We, none of us, pre-Christ, before the Lord is really working with us, before you're hearing about the Lord, none of us are, are thinking, I want someone or some God that I've got to obey. And so that's a human condition. And then God gets a hold of us, and we learn, after we give our lives to Jesus, we learn from God that following him is freedom. It is freedom. We learn that, that everyone is enslaved to the things of this world and the ways that this world acts and thinks and what the world, how the world is plundering who you are and what you think and, and all of that. We learn that, that knowing the Lord and walking in him is actually freedom from that enslavement and that bondage to sin and that God gives life and steadfast love. So there's a statement here from the Lord, fools say there's no God, and then we're recognizing that is foolish because we know the Lord, we love him, we love his steadfast love, all right? So that's what fools say. Next, let's look at some really encouraging things, two things, what God says. First, 
God says they are corrupt, all right? God says they are corrupt. So God is doing diagnostic things here in 1B through verse 4. It's pretty cool, right? God knows what's up. He sees everything. He's doing diagnostics on humanity. These verses are from the perspective of God the Father in the heavens looking down. So 1B through 4, it says, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not, and do not call upon the Lord? So this is the Lord diagnostically looking at humanity and saying seven things about humanity that he just listed. And I'll repeat them right here. You you could just underline them. You don't need to write these down. I'm just pulling them right out of the verses. The first thing he diagnoses, they are corrupt. Second thing, they do abominable things. All right, abominable means, it doesn't just mean like something corrupt. Abominable in the scriptures means against the Lord on purpose. Like he specifically says, don't do that. And you're like in your face. That's, that's abominable in the Lord's eyes, right? Third is, he says that no one does good. Fourth is no one is seeking God's ways. Fifth is they have turned aside together. And I find that word really helpful, really interesting because y'all, there is such a mob mentality in our world. Y'all agree with that, right? What's popular is what's true, right? Let me just air quote that so you're not like, writing that down. Pastor Mike said what's popular is true. That's not what I mean. Like that's our world, what we think, right? Like there's bandwagon thoughts, there's mob mentalities, and people are just go hook, line, and sinker with that sort of stuff. And here you see they have become corrupt. Together they have become corrupt. So we want to run with the Lord and not, and not just with the crowd, right? Verse, the sixth one is they devour God's people, and the seventh one is they have no concept of calling upon the Lord for forgiveness and salvation. So they are corrupt. Would you say they're corrupt? I would say they're corrupt. He's talking about the wicked world. He's talking about people who don't know the Lord, who haven't given their life to Jesus Christ. They're corrupt. So that's God's diagnosis. And so we got to trust that. We trust his diagnosis of humanity. And I want to share with you two things that we see about the Lord here. The first one is we see God's overwatch here. We see God's overwatch. God does not miss anything. He sees everything. He's, it says here, literally, he's looking at the entire world. He's looking at every single person. He's looking into their lives, into their thoughts, into their belief. He knows everything about everyone, his overwatch. He does not miss anything. And then the second thing we see is we also see God's heart here. This is the reason I love Psalm 14 so much the heart of God versus the heart of the wicked in Psalm 14. That contrast is remarkable. We see the heart of God here. The heart of the corrupt says there is no God, but the heart of God desires that the corrupt call upon his name for salvation. Do y'all see that at the end of verse four? Do none of them call upon the Lord? So God in his overwatch is saying, they're all corrupt. They're all condemned. 
But what's his heart behind that diagnostic is that he wants to save everyone. His desire is to save. He wants people to call upon the Lord. He has given us the means to call upon the Lord and be saved, and that's his desire. Not that they would say, there is no God, but that they would say, you are God, and I place my faith in you for forgiveness and salvation in Jesus Christ. Romans 10.13 says, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. What an amazing promise. That verse starts with all. Like the person that you're thinking of that is so maybe, maybe uh, just the the most hardcore way saying, "I, I do not believe God, there is no God. All who call upon the Lord will be saved. That person included if they call upon the Lord. We believe that and God is so open to that. That's why he's scanning humanity. He wants people to call upon him. So any unsaved or or wandering person here, I just pray you would call upon the Lord and be saved. I pray our prayer for those that we know who are unsaved or wandering would call upon, that we would pray that they would call upon the Lord and be saved and follow him. The first thing God says is they are corrupt. The second thing God says is that I am with the righteous. And just like all of the Psalms we've seen so far, this is our balm, right? Like we're so happy, like, yes, he's with the righteous. He cares for us. He loves us. He hasn't left us or forsaken us. We know that truthfully, but sometimes we feel that he has. And he's saying here, I am with the righteous, verses five through six. It says, there they are, meaning the wicked, there they are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. God would, you would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. So what God's doing here is he is grouping humanity into two groups, and here they're called generations. This isn't generations like Gen X and Gen Y according to age. That does happen in the scriptures, but here it's two generations, meaning there's a generation that's wicked and there's a generation that's righteous. Uh, Righteous by faith through their belief in God and his promises ultimately in Jesus Christ, or wicked by not believing God and his promises and not taking him up on salvation, right? So wicked versus righteous, and God knows the distinction between those two groups. We can try real hard, but we, we're never completely sure. God knows exactly, right? And he's the one that makes these groups, and he's saying of the wicked generation that they need to be in great terror. Why? Because they're unsaved and because they're messing with God's people whom God loves. And so here's David, who's one of those people who is being messed with, And he's thinking, they got to be in great terror because God is with the righteous. And in that moment, David didn't feel super rescued by the Lord. His, His refuge was in the Lord. But in that moment, the wicked were still prevailing. And he's saying, they should be in great terror because God is with the righteous and he is against the wicked. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Weight of Glory, He said, in the end, that face, which is the delight or the terror of the universe, must be turned upon each of us, either conferring glory inexpressible, that's salvation, right? You're saved, you place your faith in Jesus, glory inexpressible, enter into your rest, right? Or inflicting shame that can never be cured or disguised. So we think about this word terror in our in our verse, in verse five, and we're thinking future terror for those who don't know the Lord. And then, and then we think about 
ourselves and how we're the righteous and we don't have future terror that we need to worry about. We are guaranteed eternal life through our faith in Jesus Christ. Heaven is ahead. Him restoring all things is ahead for us. That is tremendous hope for us and we see that he is with the generation of the righteous. Y'all, I just wanna encourage you. We are gathered today. We are the generation of the righteous. We are believers. We love the Lord. God is with us. He is for us. There are clear demarcations in in Psalm 14 about the wicked versus the righteous, and we are the righteous. And so we can read this text and be encouraged that the Lord is with us. And I want you to feel that, right? As we watch the news, as we see what's happening in this world, as we... we, um, as we think, man, it seems to be getting more corrupt, more wicked, more abominable. It's a really fun word to say, more abominable, right? We think, Lord, like, it seems like it's, it's getting worse and there's more oppression here. And are you with us? Are you with us? And the answer to that is yes. In 100% yes, he is with us. God says, I am with the righteous. And then let's look at this last verse. What we say, what I say from verse seven is, come, Lord Jesus. So we've seen the the wicked say, uh, or fools say there is no God. God says they are corrupt. God says, I am with the righteous. And then we say, I say, come, Lord Jesus, from verse seven. Verse seven says, oh, that the salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. This is a plea sentence, right? It starts with oh, comma, or oh, exclamation mark. It's one of certain hope, not of the circumstantial variety of hope. And it's hope in what? Very specifically, it's hope that Jesus will spring forth from God's throne and save his people. It's that Jesus will spring forth from God's throne and save his people. Jesus is the one who will come out of heaven. And he's done it once already, his first coming. And he's gonna do it again, his second coming. His first coming, he came. He was the perfect image of the representation of God in this world. He died on the cross. He rose from the grave to free us, to give us new life with the Lord if we place our faith in him, forgive our sins. And the second coming, he's gonna come and restore all things all things that are taken from wickedness in this world, all the things that are broken, he's gonna restore those things. And a reality for us is that the only moment that will ultimately end wickedness is Jesus' return. That's the only moment that's ultimately gonna end wickedness. And that's not like a lazy button for us, like I'm just gonna let it ride and and, uh, Jesus is gonna come back and fix all things. We need to push back darkness in our world. We need to be light. We need to be salt. Jesus calls us light and salt, but we've got to know that we can't fix it. Only Jesus can. And so when we realize I can't fix this, when we realize we can't fix this, we can't fix the things in our city that we would love to see fixed, when we we do everything we can, but then we realize can't do it all. So come, Lord Jesus. We want the restoration of all things. We want to see him face to face. Now, what do we do when Jesus doesn't return today, right? We read the news and we're like, this is terrible. Come, Lord Jesus, right now. And then tomorrow happens. What do we do then? We do the three things that are in this passage. 
The first thing we do is we recognize that those who say there is no God are foolish. We have hope. We have hope. There is a God. And he is watching, and he does want people to call upon him. The second thing we do is we have to keep our refuge in God. Not a refuge in things getting better, not a refuge in improved circumstances, not a refuge in feeling better, but we got to have a refuge in God because that's the only thing. He's the only one who is steadfast and will never change. His word endures forever. We've got to keep our refuge in him. And then third, We've got to keep knowing that God is with us until Jesus returns, and then he's with us in the most spectacular way for all eternity, face to face, right, with our Savior. God is with us until Jesus' return when he restores all things. I want you all to feel something about Psalm 14 that has really struck me this week and blessed me in a really cool way, and I want to make sure that y'all, that I, that I share that with you. Um, while humans might do all we can to deny God. Well, let me just say, while the wicked might do all they can to deny God, God is at work to be known by humans. And you see it in this passage. You see his heart, right? You see the heart of the wicked and what the wicked says, and then you see the heart of the Lord and what the Lord says. And the Lord wants the wicked to call upon him for salvation. And so he's given us all of the arrows in the Old Testament toward Jesus. He sent Jesus Jesus sent disciples to those who haven't heard in areas and pockets of our world that are still unreached with the gospel. Uh, God is appearing to, to those people in dreams and telling them about Jesus. It's amazing. Muslims are coming to Christ like that. So cool. So we see that God not only exists, but God desires that all be saved. So not only is saying there is no God foolish, we see also that God desires to save those who are currently saying there is no God. So I want us to not refuse the impulse to pray about the wicked who say there is no God. And so I want to, I'm going to give y'all a few minutes to just pray for people that you know who say there is no God. Um, first service, I'm, I mean, I, I'm, I, my list just keeps growing and it's mostly people that are in my neighborhood. All right. Who do you know that is saying there is no God? And here's the prayer prompts and you're just going to pray on your own. Um, Charles and CJ, we're going to close us here in a minute and... Uh, few minutes. So let me just read you prompts. Names in the bracket. Y'all get that? We do this. Uh, it just means fill, fill that in. Who do you know who is saying there is no God? And then pray, Lord, would those names call upon your name? Don't refuse the impulse to pray, right? Second one, this is a personal one for you about what doubt or fear that you're facing. Lord, I take refuge in you. You are with me. And you could say, Lord, you are with me because it says right here in verse 5 of Psalm 14, you are with the generation of the righteous. You are with me. So I take refuge in you, Lord, about this doubt, about this fear that I'm facing. And then the third one, Jesus, only you can ultimately restore corrupt things in this world. So come, Lord Jesus. All right, so work through those prayers one by one for the next few minutes, and then I'll close this in prayer here in a moment.
Lord God, you hear these names. And Lord, we pray in your kindness and your mercy and your grace that you would save them and point them to Jesus. Use us, Lord. Use others. Save souls, God, we pray. Would you call many to call upon your name for salvation? Use us in the mission, God. Help us be bold. Help us care. Help us love. Save our families. Save our friends. Save our coworkers. Save our neighbors. Save our classmates. Save our teammates. Save nations. Save people groups. Lord, would they call upon your name. Lord, about the things that we are fearing today, about the things about which we're anxious, we give those to you, Lord, saying you are our refuge, not even the betterment of these things, but you, Lord, are our refuge. We place our refuge in you. We do ask that you would, you would mend the things that are broken or difficult and give us answers. But God, amidst all of that, may our refuge be in you. And then finally, Lord Jesus, come. We want you to come back and to restore all things. We read of these things in the scripture, how amazing you designed it, how broken it is now. We feel the brokenness every day. God, we pray that you would come. Lord Jesus, come and restore all the corrupt things. We long to see you face to face. We long to be with you for all eternity, and we thank you for saving us. Lord, we pray these things in your name by the power of your spirit.